Long History's Random UK Prime Minister of the Week, number 44, Harold Macmillan, Old Times and New. Harold Macmillan was Prime Minister between 1957 and 1963. Welcome everyone to Long History's latest episode of Random UK Prime Minister of the Week. This week we're covering Harold Macmillan, who seems to have been a bit caught between two ages. And we'll explain how and why in this episode. Here on Long History, we take a Prime Minister literally at random and then we ask a few questions. Such as what were they like, how did they get into office, what their main achievements were, and how they left office. And we've already covered randomly quite a few Prime Ministers now. So if that interests you, feel free to explore your podcast provider, or they're all neatly wrapped up together on longhistory.net, our website. And if you can, don't forget to subscribe or follow Long History to be informed of when future episodes are released. Okay, so here we go with a post-war Prime Minister who was caught between two ages. This is Random UK Prime Minister of the Week number 44, Harold Macmillan, Old Times and New. Harold Macmillan took up the office of Prime Minister in the late 1950s and even then he looked like a man of the past. Yet the 60s began their swinging when he was Prime Minister and he wasn't keen to be seen as a relic of the past. But, for example, he was the last Prime Minister to be born in the Victorian era and he was, a small but telling detail, the last Prime Minister to have a moustache. If you don't know what he looks and sounds like, well, all you have to do is imagine a stereotypical upper-class Englishman, and you're already halfway there. He had a very correct and easily parodied way of speaking, and so it is easy to describe him as a man of a different age. Yet, from the reading we've done for this episode, he was much more of a centrist than his posh demeanour would imply. He wasn't quite of the old school and he doesn't seem to have been quite as of the right, for want of a better word, than it might seem at first glance. He was from a very wealthy family, but his grandfather had roots as a Scottish crofter, and Macmillan was quite proud of these Scottish roots, although this same ancestor had gone on to found the Macmillan Publishing Group, certainly a very famous publisher in the UK and perhaps worldwide so Macmillan was most definitely not working class himself. However, we can to a certain extent say that his roots aren't quite as aristocratic as that posh demeanour suggested. Somehow here on Random UK Prime Minister of the Week, we haven't covered any Prime Minister from the 1960s onwards. Now that admittedly has made us question whether our random number generator is faulty, I think it is, but never mind. But, on finally arriving at the 1960s, an initial surprise about Macmillan's time in office is the number of famous phrases that arose during his time. Now, he wasn't particularly responsible for all of them, and I'm not sure, but this could reflect the rise of the press during this era, possibly even of television as well, introducing more of an age of soundbites. We'll quote five of those phrases here and explain them throughout this episode. And I should add, I'm not going to do an impression of Harold Macmillan. Number one, most of our people have never had it so good. Number two, the wind of change is blowing through this continent. Number three, the night of the long knives. Number four, he would, wouldn't he? And number five, events, my dear boy, events. 
So have you heard of any of those phrases? How many of them can you place? Do you know what they mean? Well, fear not, we'll find out in this episode. So, who was Harold Macmillan? Was he just a remnant of a world war generation? Or was he the earliest iteration of the swinging 60s? Here we'll take a look and find an answer that for us at least was more intriguing than we expected. What was Harold Macmillan like? Well, the intrigue begins early on really because there seems to have been two distinct sides to Macmillan's personality, sort of a before and after. Early on in his life, it seems he could have gone the way of any wealthy, intelligent man, interested in politics but not necessarily very committed. At this point, he seems to have been seen as rather dull, really. But as he aged and matured, and for reasons we'll cover in more detail later, his ambitions seemed to firm up and he became more focused. He seemed to nurture his strengths, his wit, his ambition, his connections and overcame that earlier dryness and slight directionlessness. Eventually, it seems he did what he needed to do to get to the top. It turned out that he was good at politics. He had something of a reputation for letting the people around him do the work while he took the credit. Now again, there are two ways of looking at that. That can be seen as the trait of a bad manager or actually of an excellent manager. Regarding the time leading up to his premiership, Macmillan's slight ruthlessness and ambition were exposed, particularly with regards to his long-term rival Rab Butler, who had seemed like a potential future leader of the Conservative Party and the country, until the more overtly ambitious Macmillan pushed him to one side and took the top position for himself. What was the historical background? The 1950s is famously the era of the early years of the Cold War. In Great Britain in particular, Macmillan was dealing with the legacy of the British Empire. These were years of decolonisation, which Macmillan strongly supported, albeit for practical reasons. He saw the enterprise, at least in part, in terms of a cost-benefit analysis. Really just coming to the conclusion that keeping the colonies was not worth the cost. Macmillan also seemed to see that keeping the colonies was something of a, a military liability, is that the correct phrase? The use of the military to hold the empire together was not popular at home and it tarnished the country's reputation internationally. So this is where the phrase, the wind of change is blowing through this continent, stems from. It relates to this decolonisation process and was said by Macmillan in South Africa's parliament in 1960. Countries as far afield as Singapore and Sierra Leone all became independent during these years or began their journey towards independence. And of course all these countries have their own vivid histories and their own relationship with the United Kingdom. So that was just a glance at the international situation from a UK point of view it has to be said. But what was happening in the UK itself? Well... Another of Macmillan's most famous phrases was spoken in 1957, just a few months after he'd taken up office. This phrase is, Most of our people have never had it so good. Now this one's very famous, and although it seems to be a slightly boastful phrase, in fact it was actually a warning. Really the fact of it was self-evident. These were prosperous times, after the 1930s and 1940s, which had definitely not been good. But now, with post-war stability, earnings were rising, 
Newfangled devices such as fridges, televisions and vacuum cleaners were becoming widely available. People were taking holidays. The first motorways were being built. The late 1950s in particular saw a period of growth, with household incomes outpacing prices, particularly outside the southeast. One statistic we found says that the average weekly wage in 1959 was £8.90, which in today's money would be £260 or US$330. However, although Macmillan was stating that many people had never had it so good, the phrase was actually a warning, not a boast. He was saying that things were going so well that this situation couldn't possibly continue. What was happening over in the US at the time? The late 1950s were the last time new states have joined the United States, being Alaska and Hawaii both in 1959. It had actually been 47 years since the previous state, Arizona, had joined the Union. There were two presidents during Macmillan's time in office, Eisenhower, who Macmillan had known since his days during the war, and Kennedy, whose sister was actually married to Macmillan's brother-in-law, creating a, a rather indirect, but nevertheless a, still a family connection. Who could vote in those years? Despite being in office for six years, Harold Macmillan actually won only one general election, early in 1959, with a very positive result actually for his Conservative Party. The party increased its majority to 100 seats from the previous 60. And the only big electoral change to the rules around that time was that the voting age was reduced from 21 to 18 in 1969. So that's a bit of the background of the time. Back to Macmillan himself and what was his background. Macmillan was the second longest lived Prime Minister ever. He died on the 29th of December 1986 at 92 years, 322 days of age. And this record was actually only broken in 2005 when Jim Callaghan lived 42 days longer. Macmillan was born during the Victorian era, as we've said. He was born on the 10th of February 1894 in London. He died in East Sussex. And we've mentioned his grandfather, who founded the Macmillan Publishing Group, this Scottish crofter, but his mother was actually American, from Illinois. And we can't really overemphasise those Scottish crofter roots, because this was most definitely an upper-class man. He had the very most establishment of educational backgrounds, being educated at Eton College and then Oxford University. And this is far and away the most common educational combination for future Prime Ministers, Macmillan married another pillar of the establishment, Dorothy Cavendish, in April 1920. And any avid listeners of long history will know that the Cavendish name is woven throughout British history, being the surname of the powerful and famous Dukes of Devonshire. Dorothy was the daughter of the ninth Duke, apparently, but the fourth Duke was himself Prime Minister, just briefly, two centuries earlier, and we have created an episode about him if you're interested. And as we've said, there seemed to be two sides to his personality. Apparently during his youth he wasn't very interesting personality-wise, but he did serve on the Western Front in World War I and he was injured. And his taking part in this war seemed to stir a loyalty in him towards the soldiers who had fought for their country right until his old age. 
And one thing that we gleaned from this research is that an unintended benefit of these wars, if we can talk in those terms, is that the wealthy and the working class fought together and got to know each other. So by the time Macmillan became Prime Minister, he had known people from a wide range of backgrounds, and it's the kind of qualification that you would hope would be an essential requisite for all Prime Ministers, but I suspect not. Macmillan entered Parliament in the mid-1920s, but from then there don't seem to have been many signs that he was a future Prime Minister in the making. This marriage, in the meantime, is one of the more famously unhappy ones between Prime Ministers, his wife having a notorious affair for many years with one of Macmillan's colleagues. This was very much to the distress of Macmillan himself, the affair being one of the worst-kept secrets in Macmillan's circle, and became one of those nasty, defining pieces of gossip about Macmillan. One result of this episode, however, seems to have been to make Macmillan focus on politics more seriously, just in time for the Second World War, actually, when Macmillan made what turned out to be the right choice in rejecting Chamberlain's attempts to appease Hitler, and instead became a close supporter of Winston Churchill. Now, until then, he hadn't really been seen as a significant player, as far as we can see, but even now it was still a long path towards the central circle of the Conservative Party. During the Second World War, however, something changed when, in January 1943, he was sent to North Africa. And for the first significant time he showed his abilities to manage. His success in this part of the Second World War finally brought him to the fore of the Conservative Party. Even then, though, he wasn't gifted the best roles... By the time of Churchill's second premiership in the early 1950s, he was given the role of Minister of Housing. Now, this wasn't exactly a glamorous role, but it was necessary to build homes at the time, and he took to the role with relish, apparently, having been given an ambitious target of building some 300,000 homes. Now, he did achieve this target, showing that he could get the job done, but this achievement did also reveal the dangers of politics by targets given the inevitable shortcuts and compromises that were made along the way. But he was shown as an effective organiser, and in this way pushed his way to the foreground. How did Harold Macmillan become Prime Minister? Anthony Eden was his predecessor. Eden's predecessor, in turn, was Winston Churchill. Now, he was still a hard act to follow in the late 1950s, and he'd only reluctantly given up his premiership as he approached his 80s due to ill health. Eden had been seen something of an heir apparent in the Conservative Party for many years, almost to the point where, when he eventually reached the top, the expectations were, were kind of so high that he seemed to be fated to disappoint. Macmillan was Foreign Secretary, then Chancellor of the Exchequer during Eden's two years as Prime Minister. So that was the strange situation just before Macmillan took the job. People had expected Eden to take charge of the latest iteration of a Great Britain, moving on from the victory of World War II into a bright future. Instead, they got the Suez Crisis, where Egypt suddenly took over the Suez Canal, which had until then been controlled by the French and British, and in a series of missteps led by Eden, the British had to retreat, an action which forced the country to face the fact that it was no longer a world superpower. The former great empire had been humbled. In one fell swoop, the limits of the UK's post-war power were exposed. Eden's hesitancy and his perceived mismanagement of the crisis led to his resignation and in the scramble to replace him, Macmillan emerged as Prime Minister. 
We've already mentioned how he elbowed Rab Butler, his rival for the leadership of the Conservative Party, out of the way when the opportunity arose for a new leader to be chosen. And we have also seen arguments that Macmillan actually elbowed his predecessor, Eden, out of the way as Prime Minister, emphasising the disaster that the Suez Crisis could pose for the country if it didn't quickly move on. What were Macmillan's biggest achievements as Prime Minister? So, the country was reeling after the Suez Crisis. Not only had the country lost, both literally and metaphorically, but they'd also exposed the fact that the UK's role as a superpower was over. The United States, bogged down in its own Cold War, was not particularly interested in issues regarding this former British Empire, and that lack of support crushed the UK. Macmillan came along, however, and he was a close acquaintance of President Eisenhower, and he was actually, through marriage, as we've said, related to Kennedy. So he came just in time to restore the Atlantic balance, emphasising the special relationship between the two countries and managing quickly to paint over the cracks that had emerged in the US-UK relations. In this way, also helping the UK to come to terms with its new role in the world. Macmillan commented famously on this particular role, saying, to paraphrase, that while the US made all the noise in world affairs, the UK got quietly on with running things and making sure that the new superpower did the right thing. He said that it was much like the ancient times, when Greek slaves found themselves running the Roman Empire whilst their vigorous but vulgar leaders made all the noise. It seems a bit of wishful thinking, but such attitudes perhaps helped to massage British egos at the time. And the 1950s in the UK are often looked at with nostalgia. And when they do that, they're often thinking of the late 1950s without realising it. This was Macmillan's time in office, and it was a period of growth, stability and wealth, so Macmillan can take some credit for that. One thing that's often overlooked with regards to Macmillan's time in office is that the famous beaching cuts began during these years. This was when Britain's railway system was severely cut back, something which I don't think was popular even at the time and has had long-lasting consequences. Macmillan, however, treated the railways much as he had treated the empire, thinking of it in terms of a cost-benefit analysis and cutting out any lines that could not financially justify themselves, somewhat forgetting along the way that the British were actually quite attached to their railways, and although it was seen as overdue modernisation by many, it also provoked decades of regret, and with green issues now on the rise, even now those drastic cuts can be seen as rather regrettable. Why did Harold Macmillan stop being Prime Minister? Well, as we've stated, Macmillan seemed like a man from a previous age, and this became even more obvious as the 1960s took hold. This was the age of one particular famous satire boom, during which he was portrayed as passive, old and rather useless, really. By 1962, Macmillan's popularity was waning, and this led to another of those famous phrases, the Night of the Long Knives. As the Conservatives were losing their popularity, Macmillan, in an attempt to reassert his leadership and have a fresh start, sacked a third of his cabinet. This didn't really have the required aim, however. Rather than refreshing the government, it just made Macmillan even more unpopular with the people of his own party. And as Macmillan's leadership waned, the Perfumo affair inevitably crops up at this moment. This was a very Cold War scandal, which broke in early 1963, 
when the Secretary of State for War was said to be sleeping with a woman, Christine Keeler, who was also sleeping with a Russian captain. Of course, it was perfect fodder for a Cold War scandal, and it made Macmillan seem like he'd lost control. This was the time when that famous phrase, well, he would, wouldn't he, became famous. It stemmed from a trial resulting from the Profumo affair, with Mandy Rice Davis, another of the women involved in this scandal, using this phrase when being told that one gentleman had denied meeting or sleeping with her. Well, he would, wouldn't he? The affair was particularly damaging because it laid bare the dubious exploits of the establishment at the time, of which Macmillan was of course a fully signed up member. As 1963 dragged on, his popularity waned and Macmillan fell ill in October. He had an operation on his prostate and used this illness as a reason to resign. Somehow, engineering his successor, Alec Douglas Hume, into the job, something which has been seen as another snub towards Rab Butler. And all this, of course, was just a month before that other famous world event, the assassination of John Kennedy. Why should we remember Harold Macmillan? Well, he is attributed with a final phrase of those five, and this is, events, my dear boy, events. And he's said to have made this comment when asked what the most difficult part of being Prime Minister was. And it's not clear whether he actually said these words, but actually it isn't clear that he didn't say them. <laughs> so I guess there's more research to be done there. Macmillan, however, was good at dealing with one particular event, the fallout from the Suez Crisis, he smoothed relationships over with the US and clawed back some dignity for the UK. He also pushed for the independence of many nations as part of his process of decolonization. the whole thing from beginning to end of course being controversial. And in a way the complexity of decolonization is typical of the late 1950s. It's looked back on with nostalgia, but it isn't seen as a golden age as such, because in many ways the UK's power and influence was shrinking. It just couldn't be denied anymore. However, Macmillan did preside over that age of relative prosperity and stability. So, was Macmillan a man of the future or of the past? Well, things were going to change a lot during the 1960s, and interestingly, Macmillan recovered from that prostate operation and lived another 20 years, right into another great age of change, the 1980s. So even that 1960s future became history. In the 1980s, when Macmillan was now in his 90s, the latest iteration of his party was in power. Margaret Thatcher was in charge, and she was privatising the country's assets and setting itself up in opposition to the sorts of men who, in previous generations, had fought for their country. Macmillan was certainly not an admirer of this new version of the Conservative Party, stating, in particular, about the miners' strike, this terrible strike by the best men in the world who beat the Kaisers and Hitler's armies and never gave in. Macmillan made this quotation when he was 90 years old and it shows just how much the country had moved on, not just since the 1950s but also since the 1960s. The post-war political consensus that involved the NHS and nationalisation was coming to an end. Macmillan, however, remained loyal to the people he'd fought with some 70 years earlier. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Random UK Prime Minister of the Week. As we begin to look at more recent Prime Ministers, I'm more aware than ever of the wide range of opinions available here. 
and of the potential to get details wrong here and there, please forgive me and as always just see this as the briefest summary with the intention of trying to pique your interest so you can find out more for yourself. This was Random UK Prime Minister of the Week, number 44, Harold Macmillan, Old Times and New. Goodbye.